I have felt for some time that the occasion is getting close when I would have the opportunity to, to share some experiences of a journey that I have been on for some time now. So I want to do something different with this sermon, something that I have never done before in all of my over 50 years now in ministry. It's an experiment of sorts, and you are the guinea pigs. I want to take you on some of the pathways that I have been traveling for the past seven years or so with my beloved Carol, who is now in the sixth stage out of seven stages of Alzheimer's disease. I trust that you understand the import and the impact of those two numbers, six and seven. The journey is a personal one, yet in many ways I think it contains ingredients that I think are of supreme importance for all of us who are human beings and who live in relationships whose integrity is maintained by the use of words, whose feelings gain their substance through the use of memory and of habit, and whose essential meaning embraces the ability to make decisions that are useful and worthy and even sacred. And if I have learned anything in the past seven years, it is how precious memory is. And how mysterious and sacred it is. It is a marvel that we human beings can use words and formulate ideas and give expression to abstract feelings like love and hope and joy and sorrow and pain and frustration and anger and disappointment and pride and thanksgiving and a myriad of other emotions. Think of it. Just think of it. And what I would hope today that you might take away from some of this tale that I am about to tell, if nothing else, is the resolve to never again take your brains for granted. Or, to put it positively, to treat your brains as a precious treasure, as a sacred trust, to be nurtured, honored, and cherished. It was almost three years ago that I began keeping a journal of this journey. My effort was 
prompted, though the disease had obviously begun a long time before that, probably three years, maybe four. It's difficult to tell precisely. My effort was prompted by a somewhat difficult episode triggered by Carol's doctor, who had suggested that she get a mammogram. We went to the lab uh, with much resistance from her and much confusion and a lot of anxiety. But mostly the experience went smoothly. A day later, however, the lab called to say that her left breast showed some abnormality and they wanted to repeat the imaging. There was much confusion and anxiety at that point. Why do I have to go, she asked. I tried again to explain, but really to no avail. And then I said that I would call Dr. Dawn Broderick and talk with her about other options. So I did. Dr. Broderick was concerned and said that it's always much better to catch a problem in its early stages and deal with it than to wait, which is essentially what I had said to Carol in the first place. Then she suggested that she might talk to Carol in person. Maybe that would help. She did. Carol did really not track on the conversation, but very reluctantly agreed that she would go back to the lab for more imaging. I took the phone from her and finished the conversation with, with Dawn Broderick, hung up the phone and turned to Carol, who was now crying. Everybody gets a say but me. Everybody gets a say but me. And I looked away And I said, she's right. She's right. I continued to reflect in my journal on this episode. And I said, we have crossed another threshold with this latest experience. For what bothers and frightens and maybe even terrifies her is not so much going to the doctor or getting an, ex an exam or doing and enduring what, whatever needs to be done. It is the loss of control over one's destiny. It is sitting, as it were, as a third party on the sidelines while others make decisions about your life. It must be feeling like a three-year-old being told what to do, what to wear, how to behave. Everybody gets a say but me. How true. And not having the ability any longer to understand why it is this way. If the meaning of life is intrinsically linked to our ability to think and to reason and to weigh differences rationally, and thus make decisions of great import for our lives, then what is really slipping away is meaning.
is meaning. It was also about three years ago when I took note of another milestone in this journey. Carol had stopped reading books. There are, I would estimate, six, seven, eight hundred books in her library that sits in our bedroom in the L part. We have a very large bedroom, and the books go from floor to ceiling. She has always treasured books, and indeed, I associate her with reading. I always have. There's a favorite picture of ours that hangs in the piano room of a woman sitting in a red wicker chair reading. Her legs are crossed, and she is finely dressed, and her hair is done up in a bun, and she's wearing high-heeled shoes. Well, now, Carol has never worn her hair up, and she's never worn high-heeled shoes, but in tone and demeanor, that painting is Carol. She was a voracious reader, and not in any cursory sense either. I'm not sure that she read the index in books, but I wouldn't put it past her. When she was in college and thinking of becoming a foreign language teacher, she read all of the books of the Spanish philosopher Unamuno in Spanish. She wrote a 50-page thesis that literally overwhelmed her professor because of its length, its depth, and its insight. And that was two years before we were married. So that was 55 years ago. Knowing all of this, one cannot help asking why. Why are great and wonderful minds wasted to this terrible disease? I have come to understand the scientific answer, but that does not stop me from asking the existential question when it is part of my own personal journey. The brain weighs about three pounds, and the cerebrum fills up most of the skull. It is in the cerebrum that memory is located, problem-solving ability, feeling, and the control of movement. The cerebellum sits in the back of the head and controls balance and coordination. And the brain stem sits below that and controls such things that occur almost naturally, like breathing and digestion and heart rate and blood pressure. The brain is nourished by a vast network of blood vessels, and indeed about 25% or slightly more of all of the blood vessels in our body are found in the brain. The real hard work of the brain goes on in those individual cells called neurons. There are about 100 billion of them in a normal brain. I suspect Reverend Carl maybe has 200 billion. (laughs) But at any rate, that's a lot. That's a lot. And in turn with branches 
that connect about 100 trillion different points. The brain is an amazing machine. These 100 trillion points are often referred to as the neuron forest. And it is neurons that get destroyed with the disease of Alzheimer's. The signals that move through the neuron forces are electrical charges, and these charges connect with one another at synapses, where tiny bursts of chemicals are released called neurotransmitters, and they in turn travel across the synapse, carrying signals to other cells, calling those transmitters to do something. Alzheimer's disrupts both those electrical charges and the activity of the neurotransmitters. In the vernacular, I suppose one might say, say, one might say the brain goes haywire and it shrinks. Quite literally, it shrinks. The horror of the disease, of course, is that it moves so slowly, at least in most cases. There is fast-onset Alzheimer's, but I'm not talking about that today. I should add parenthetically, and it's an important footnote, I think, as general information, that once you have seen one Alzheimer's patient, you have seen one Alzheimer's patient. Every person is different, and it holds true here. So a caregiver might experience, for instance, vast personality changes. In Carol's case, this has not been true. The sweet, gentle, caring, loving, tender person that she was for 66 or 67 years has remained so. And if anything, those wonderful attributes have even been enhanced as this disease has progressed. On the other hand, the husband of my daughter-in-law, Carol's sister, Barbara, was a difficult man at some points in his life. Not that difficult, really. He was uh, bombastic much of the time, but it was all a big cover for uh, insecurities, I think. But when he contracted Alzheimer's, he was hell on wheels and became ultimately almost dangerous. So we in our family are extremely lucky and extremely grateful that this experience for us has been much easier and at points, I have to say, even joyous as we have traveled the difficult road to its inevitable, its inevitable conclusion. The episodes that I described a moment ago took place nearly three years ago and we'd be characterized, I think, as 
typical of stages four and the beginning of stage five, where there is a pronounced inability to perform somewhat complex functions. In our case, it included difficulty in putting items away in their proper place, appropriate clothing to wear. So, for instance, I have found a computer cord tucked away in the dish cupboard, or a loose sock in with the kids' coloring books, or a cookie wrapped up and placed in the bookcase. Episodes with clothing have been sometimes hilarious, with items pulled out of the hamper, or six or even seven clothing changes within the period of an hour. And one has to laugh and be amused, for the tears of anguish are just, just a little bit beneath the surface. And laughter is the therapy for alleviating the pain of knowing with certainty what is coming next on the journey. Because Alzheimer's up to this point moves only in one direction. I hope, I hope against all hope that that changes someday. Stages four and five of the disease are replete, replete with such things as disorientation or knowing what season it is, for instance. Two years ago, we traveled to Michigan and arrived at my sister's home in East Lansing. We've been there hundreds of times. At four in the afternoon, we drove in the driveway, and Carol said, where are we? Why are we here? That night, we got into bed, and again, she asked the question, where are we? Why are we here? Who lives here? And I told her. She leaned over and kissed me and said, thank you for caring for me. Thank you for caring for me. The following morning, my Uncle Charles and Aunt Dawn arrived, and we joined them in traveling up to northern Michigan for a tour of old childhood haunts. On the way, we stopped at a very, very nice gas station, kind of an elaborate 7-Eleven, except that it wasn't. And my sister took Carol to the restroom. Aunt Dawn stood with me, waiting and waiting, and cautiously then asked me if I thought Carol was aware of what was happening to her. It's a question that I've often asked, and I know from talking to other caregivers that that question is asked quite often as well. I told Dawn about what had happened the previous night and then suggested that maybe in that moment Carol knew, but I couldn't be sure. Dawn started to cry for her own mother and several of her aunts had died from Alzheimer's. Dawn's question was not for the purpose of simple conversation. It was a gut-wrenching question for her. And I think it's an important question to probe in a very general sense for all of us because it can suggest to us different ways that we might relate to Alzheimer's patients 
if indeed there is some awareness of what is going on. And I'm not sure where that question might lead us, but I think it's an important question to ask. We are now August, almost, 2013. We are at least seven, maybe almost eight years into this disease. Gone is the ability to get dressed and undressed alone. One cannot put a bra on feet first. Even I know that. Gone almost is the ability to speak coherently. Bathroom issues are beginning to manifest themselves. Present is the terrible, terrible fear of being left alone, even for a minute. And the delightful counterpoint to that, at least for Carol, is the delicious desire to be together with other people, motioning even with her hands, saying in her garbled way, wouldn't it be nice if those nice people who live upstairs, our son and daughter-in-law, might come down and we could be together, we could be together, together. The threads of sheer survival become thinner and thinner and thinner. And one hangs on to what little reality there is for dear life, quite literally. At the risk of sounding self-serving, let me say some things about myself and how it has impacted my life in, I think, mostly positive ways. And what I would like to happen for all of you is for you to be able to extrapolate from what I have learned because maybe you might need it someday as well. Without a doubt, I have become a much more patient person. I take after my mother and not my father. My mother was very volatile and explosive. My father was even like this. In fact, my sister and I got angry with him many times because he wouldn't show any great emotion. He was always wanting to figure things out. Carol has been that way. I have not. Her virtue, I think, is her incredible patience. I am far, far, far behind, but I have traveled a long distance in that department, and this experience has taught me patience. I have learned, at least in part, Secondly, to separate the person from the disease. Not always, not always. But this is so desperately important. It is imperative. <coughs> I cannot tell you the number of times that I have caught myself up short when I was about to explode with frustration and anger 
For instance, over not being able to find something that had been tucked away in an unfamiliar place. When I couldn't find the income tax forms, when I was ready to do the taxes, because they had suddenly disappeared. And I've said to myself, Mike, Mike, calm down. She can't help it. You need to laugh. You need to laugh. And then I do. And I realize that Carol's reality is different than mine. That hers is impaired and that it lives somewhere back there. That it changes from day to day as the disease progresses. I have learned to listen more attentively And I have learned that listening involves watching body language, especially the expressions in the eyes and on the face at large. And this is becoming more and more important as Carol's language facility drops off dramatically. Reading the wrinkles and understanding the nuances is imperative. And I have come to realize that how I say something and in what tone of voice makes all the difference. That it is useless to argue, to criticize, to correct, or to try to reason. It just doesn't work. As I have intimated at several points, humor is important. Fortunately, Carol can be humorous too. And we are still able to play a little bit. I hope some of this is helpful. That perhaps in significant ways it will move you again to work to find a cure for this terrible disease or ways to prevent it from occurring in the first place. I have always encouraged my grandchildren, particularly on the female side, Julia knows this and Charlotte knows this and Gooby knows this, encourage them to do all that they can to find out how this disease works and to do whatever they can to alleviate the probability that it will occur to them someday. For in our family, at least, it seems to run in the female line. Carol's mother died of it. Her seven sisters all died of it. It is very, very strong in that strain. Where it goes from here in our family is hard to tell. Together, with the support of so many friends and family, Carol and I will move very shortly into stage seven of this disease. It is the last stage. And on that journey...
we will try to create special moments of peace and joy. There will be times of laughter and there will be tender moments because of who Carol is and has continued to be. And there will be tears, not simply of sadness and of pain, but of thanksgiving for a journey that has revealed so much truth and so much goodness and so much love.